What to Know podcast explores best practices, innovation, and latest trends with industry experts with an eye toward helping you, the listener, stay ahead of the ever-changing marketing and communications landscape. Good morning. This is Aaron Strout, CMO of W2O and host of the What to Know podcast show. And today I have Tiffany Schlain. She is author, Emmy-nominated filmmaker, speaker, and Webby Awards founder, among many other things. Welcome, Tiffany. Oh, it's great to be here. Well, it's great to have you. And uh, I'll just tell people, um, for those that have gotten used to seeing either little video clips, uh, Tiffany had to retreat to her automobile today because she had a noisy household. But uh, I love (laughs) to give people the the color commentary so they can sort of envision how this is going down. She's not driving, which is good. She's at the No, I'm parked, but I have a pretty view. (laughs) Good, good. Well, you'll have to send me a picture. I want to start by talking about the fact, and people probably can guess based on my intro, that you are an incredibly accomplished uh, person in the arts. Uh, At what point in time did you realize that you could make a real impact on the world as an author, filmmaker, creator? Because a lot of people may think that they're creative, but you've actually gone out and done some tremendous things with these skills. Hmm. That's a great question. I was actually supposed to be a doctor. And in my household, my father was a surgeon, my mother's a psychologist, and, you know, healing people was the greatest contribution that you could give. Um, And then, you know, as my, I was, when I was about 18, my father wrote his first book and he just loved it. And he had a lot of big ideas and he so enjoyed that format to, to share ideas and hopefully evolve people's thinking. And, um, you know, growing up, we always went to the movies every Sunday. We talked about all the issues of life afterwards. Um, we would dissect the movie and really talk about the meaning of life. But again, I was supposed to be a brain surgeon. So <laughs> uh, that was kind of my path until I rebelled in college and was like, I'm going to be a filmmaker. And you can imagine that didn't go over very well. But fortunately, um, when I, you know, the way I would pay for my films Uh, because filmmaking isn't very lucrative if you're making documentary films, is I would work in technology. And then um, I founded the Webby Awards um, in my 20s because I was super into kind of early forms of the web. And as soon as the web was able to show films, which we all just take it for granted now, but for a long time it was just text, I thought the combination of making films using the power of the web that I could truly make uh, a difference in the world and share my ideas in a whole new way. So then um, I sold the Webby Awards and started making films. And then this book that we're going to talk about is my first book. And, you know, it was wonderful to have that creative challenge of just doing something in words. Um, But of course, I made a whole bunch of films that, you know, that go into the ideas of the book and I've used the web to have a lot of conversations around it. So I think, I guess to answer your question in a more succinct way is that there are so many different mediums to share ideas. And I really do love experimenting with new mediums. And I always have believed, and I think this really came from my parents that my perspective was important and I believe everyone's perspective is important because everyone has a different perspective and that makes everyone's perspective valuable. So um, 
I think that's what gave me always the courage. And I failed. I should say, I know if you read my bio now, it just sounds like it was success, you know, all these successes. But I had a very big failure in my early 20s that um, that was one of the best things that ever happened to me now as I look at it. But I think anyone out there who's thinking I want to write a book or I want to paint or I want to make a film, I would just say to, you know, there all of those things you can do without anyone's permission and you can take baby steps and keep working at your craft. Now I'm 50 years old and it's very exciting because when I have an idea in my head, I know it will eventually come out on the page or in a film. But in those early years, I'd often have an idea and it wasn't what would come out on the film wasn't exactly what was in my head. So it's an interesting process. And that's what I love about getting older and just having the confidence that even if something's hard, like this film I just released was very hard to do. Um, but I, we landed where it, where I wanted it to be, even though it was a really circuitous route to get there. Well, thank you. And so many places to go after that answer, I guess. <laughs> that was such a you, long answer. I'm sorry. No, no, no. Listen, part of this is it's, <laughs> it's about the journey and I'd love to just hear about the way you think. And I know our guests do as well. Since you teed it up and you can choose not to, I do feel like it's sort of like one of the systemic issues that we have with social media, that it looks like most people's lives are perfect, right? And what you don't realize yeah. is you get a very nicely edited version of their life and they don't talk about the mental health issues or the crying or the, you know, the yeah. not being able to afford your car payment or house payment. So maybe if you would be willing to share, since it sounds like it's a few years in your rearview mirror, what that failure was and what you learned from it, mm -hmm. even though that wasn't on our script. I think that might be a good lesson for those listening in. Yeah, I, you know, I was in college. I had just like kind of rebelled in my family saying I was going to be a filmmaker. And, and I, I did win this, this big award and I went to UC Berkeley for my first kind of film. And, and that gave me the confidence, maybe too much confidence, to try to do a feature-length film right out of college. And Spike Lee had just done one to great success. And I just picked a way too ambitious topic, 40 locations, hundreds of actors. And I, w I wasn't experienced enough, um, but I was full of enthusiasm and gusto. And I raised money from family and friends and worked three jobs. And I kept running out of money. And the first couple of times I ran out of money and it was very public because I had done very well in college with this film and I was, you know, young and, you know, out there with the movie and people saw us filming and, and, uh, you know, I ran out of money twice on it. And then the third time I ran out of money, I also had a creative block about the film. So I stopped having the even confidence to go out to raise the money to finish it. And I just failed I mean I it was so public and I was so young and um because I had raised money from family and friends which I actually don't do anymore because of that experience um anywhere I went the first question they'd ask is how's the film and it was just such I felt like I let everyone down first I had you know wasn't going to become a doctor I was going to be a filmmaker and I just it was just a big failure but I am telling you and I went into a depression and I slept on friends' couches because I was too much pride to go back to my family. 
And one of the jobs to get out of debt was working in CD-ROMs, which kind of led me to see the web for the first time, which led me to the Webby Award. So I, I did get out of that, like with small successes after that. But there was a couple of years where I was uh, in a really bad place. And I think the early 20s are already hard because you've you had all of these support networks of home and college, and then suddenly you're out in the wind and... Um, Anyways, I, but I, it humbled me and it made me appreciate to this day. I can taste that feeling. Like I can taste that feeling of creative block. And I do all these things now to make sure I won't have a, or if I did have a creative block, like little like lifeboats to help me out because I know I've learned a lot and I, I know that I don't want my whole world to be around a project. Like I have to have other things in my life in case the project goes south, you have all these other things to keep you. And you know, what my book is about is ultimately this incredible tool for living well, no matter what happens. But I just feel like it, it made me a better person. It made me a better boss. Um, I, because during that film, everyone worked for free. So I had hundreds of people working for free and I had to make it fun all the time. And I think that led to, um, learning things about leadership and I just learned so many lessons. I eventually will make a film about, about failing that hard, that young. Um, but you know, my commencement speech at Berkeley, UC Berkeley, when I was 40, it's, it's at the center of my speech because, you know, you have to, you have to shoot for the stars and and you might fail. And I don't think like now the 50 year old me, like would I go back to the 22 year old me and be like, don't try to make a feature. You're only 22, like make some shorts and work your way up. But I don't know. I mean, maybe that's the beauty of being young and bold and not having like a mortgage and kids and you don't have all the things to worry about. So you can do those risks. So um, I don't regret it for a second. And it, it, it really shaped a lot of my career. And, you know, I eventually I make a lot of films about psychology about empathy about creativity about developing who you are and I learned a lot of lessons after that to kind of keep me in a stronger place no matter what happens and anytime a friend tells me they're depressed um, or someone in my family or something I I just I just get it so deeply and and maybe that's given me an empathy through all of my work because um, I you know I've, I've lost someone really close to me which I really feel that's another moment in life in addition to depression or failure that makes you connect with other people in a deeper way. Cause you both know this deep sense of loss. But I think if you've had a deep, deep depression or creative block or doubted yourself deeply, it's a really important thing to go through. Yeah. I, I thank you for sharing that. And it really is those types of things. I had a similar event happen sort of early in my career and I can still taste it. It's a great way to put it. Mm -hmm. Because I think people do, again, think, especially when they see an accomplished resume like yours, that it's all roses and happiness. And there is a lot of, there are a lot of bumps along the way. And I think it's really, it is what you take from that mistake that, you know, determines, is there more success and is there, or the, is there more failure? And I think the other thing that's important too is it's so tied to confidence. Like I can hear in the way you're talking about it. And it was the same thing with me is it knocked me off my block. You know, I was riding yeah. high and it knocked me off my block and really took me a while to get back on the horse. And I have learned not to repeat that mistake and uh, not to say I haven't made other mistakes, but um, yeah. really, really appreciate you sharing that. I do want to talk about the book <clears throat> because yeah. 
it's how we connected. And I know we're going to purchase some of these books for our employees. And so uh, the book is 24-6, The Power of Unplugging One Day a Week. Uh, Tell us more about this book and why is this such an important message in the midst of the pandemic? Yeah, well, it's interesting to kind of think back how it ties to that original value, but I, I will kind of in the narrative of my life, you know, then I started the Webby Awards. My career went very well, you know, with bumps and whatever, but on a whole, it was on an up trajectory. And and then after about a decade doing the Webby Awards, I, I sold the Webby Awards and started my own film studio and was making a lot of films and about technology and neuroscience and psychology, all this stuff. And I was feeling more and more just distracted. Like I wasn't present for my life. And I think anyone listening understands that feeling with the screens. I mean, I really felt it happened after the iPhone. So that was in 2007 that I started getting less and less present and more and more distracted. And of course I love technology. I always had, but I just felt like it was taking over my brain. And so I had this, um, I was feeling more and more distracted. And then I had this very dramatic couple weeks in my life where I lost my father to brain cancer and uh, my husband's and my daughter was born. And I was such a wake up call. It was definitely like one of those moments where I felt like life was grabbing me by the shoulders and focus and saying like, focus on what matters. So my family and I started turning off all screens one day a week for what we call our technology Shabbats. I should say I'm Jewish, but I'm not religious. I was doing it really as a practice. And it absolutely changed my life. I mean, it was the best thing I've ever done. And it is like the day I feel the most connected um, to myself, to my family. It's the day I have the most creative ideas. It's the, I feel more productive because of it. I sleep better. I laugh more on those text bots. I mean, there's like, there's so many benefits, but it's such a, um, a recentering every week. And the longer we, I did this practice with my family, the more kind of crazy everyone became with screens because we were kind of the early adopters. And I thought, I have to write this book. I, I have to write a book to share this free ancient wisdom because it is an ancient idea, the fourth commandment, a day of rest. But right now, the only people that really do it are really religious people. And here, I'm not a religious person, but I found profound, deep, soulful wisdom and just great time management. Like my whole week has a rhythm and it's, it's amazing the benefits of it. And in the book, I go into kind of the neuroscience and psychology of why we need a full day off and how technology has created no space for reflection or digesting ideas or connecting to yourself. And, um, and then during the pandemic, so the book came out last fall and, you know, it was very excited. It was exciting. It was received very well, but then the pandemic happened and, the practice became 10 times more important for my family and anyone who reads it because it was actually a very similar moment to, I think everyone this last seven months has gone through what I went through when my father died and my daughter was born. And it was like, what matters? I think the pandemic is a big, like us, we were all shaken by the shoulders going, what matters? What's important? How do you want to live? What, what, what matters to you? And I think a lot of people saw or I hope really re-looked at things in their lives and I think taking this one day off and being present and turning off the screens turning off the outside world turning off the stressful news and just thinking hearing your inner voice looking at what's right in front of you instead of all the places you're not on your phone and really recentering. so it's been exciting it just came out on paperback and actually 
the publisher, Simon & Schuster, they have a new tagline for it, which I really like because it says the way I feel about it. So it's, I like the first tagline too, but the new subtitle is 24-6, giving up screens one day a week to get back time, creativity, and connection. And that is a lot about the way I feel about this practice is it's not what you're giving up, it's what you're getting back. Like I got so... I mean, today is Friday. I am so excited. It's Friday to get my texture bot. You know, we always have people over on Friday nights. It's very social. Now it's at a distance, of course, on Friday night. And then Saturday is a much more quiet day and a lot of thinking, reading, going out in nature, doing nothing. It's just like, I cannot tell you how much I look forward to this day. And my whole family does. I have a 17-year-old and 11-year-old and my husband's a professor of robotics. We obviously love technology, but we just don't love it 24-7. And we actually appreciate it more once we're off each week. So technology itself is more powerful in its absence because you get to kind of detach from the network and think about, get a better perspective on everything. Yeah, I'm, I couldn't agree more. I have not got to the point where I can do a whole day yet, but I have been thinking about that as I've been thinking about our conversations and I do want to read the book. Um, I guess one of the questions I have is, I know during our prep session, you mentioned you and your daughter in particular taking, you know, the day off and I couldn't remember whether it was a Saturday or Sunday, but I have a 21 year old, 18 year old and 13 year old, and they are all glued to their phones pretty regularly. And we have talked to and espoused the value of that. And we try to live by that. Although sometimes it's a little bit of do what I say, not what I do. Uh, my yeah. wife actually not, not too long ago started to pull back and really dig deeper into reading, you know, reading old fashioned books. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about how that works with your kids and how you've got them on board with this. Cause I think there are a lot of people that are like, yeah, that's a great practice, but uh, good luck getting my kid to to actually unplug or my husband or wife. Or yeah, whatever. I think, well, a lot of couples, I would say, like, get the book and give it to the spouse that's more addicted or because I, I in addition to like my own story, I really go into the reasons why this is so good on a productivity level, on a creativity level, on a time management level, on all the, all the science. Like, so that's what I'd say for the spouse. For the kids, it really depends what age your kid is and what they're into. And I do go into that in the book, different strategies. But the big thing I would say is it's not a punishment. I would ask each member of your family, what's your favorite thing we do together as a family? And literally make the day filled with that. Because everyone's got a different list. Some people want to do like all play family soccer together or cook or art or go out, whatever it is. Make the day filled with that. And suddenly it's your favorite day of the week. It has to be fun. It's not like deprivation and it's not a fast. Actually, I don't like that term digital fast at all. I don't even like the term digital detox because it acts like you could live without it. It is like a practice that is so nurturing and gives back so much. Like my 17 year old daughter had a, you know, a couple times a year, there's one of us might not be able to do it for whatever reason. And she feels so like she didn't get her break. She calls it like a deep vacation one day every week because she's not allowed to do homework. She even, and this is really interesting. She's like, it's really nice to not have to respond to all the texts and social media. And like, I think we think that everyone like, oh my God, you couldn't live without it. But once you have a day without it, you have no FOMO for that day. You have no nothing. You're just like reconnect with yourself. And as a family, if you have a family meeting and say, hey, we're going to try this experiment. We're going to do this as a family because it, it can't just be one of you. It's like parenting is all modeling behavior. We try this experiment together for like three, three or four weeks. And I do recommend doing it several weeks in a row because you'll start to look forward to it. And any 
ritual or practice you have to kind of bake into your schedule. And the power of this is that it happens every week. Some people say, oh, I disconnect on vacation or whatever, but this is like every week you get this profound day that is so joyous and so replenishing that you're going to be addicted to that. Be addicted to this one day off every week because we just, we weren't designed as humans to be on all the time. And I told you I was supposed to be a doctor. My father wrote a lot about the brain. I've made a lot of films about the brain. We were not designed to be this on all the time. And I have a whole chapter in the book about the neuroscience of daydreaming and creativity and the reason why you have your best ideas when you're in the shower or washing the dishes or on a walk is that your mind does its best work when there's no new input and it's processing what's already in there and coming up with new ideas. We are living in a society where we are jamming our brain every second with new input, new news, new notifications, activate, activate, respond, respond, react. And you need to give yourself space to think, to feel, to do nothing. Because a lot of the magic happens in your mind then. So if you present it to your kids as this incredible thing you're doing for yourself. I mean, you know, everybody's kids are different. Everybody's different. So you might have to a different conversation depending on who your child is. But I do go into a lot of different strategies in the book. Well, we'll have to read the book because that does sound like you really put a lot of thought into it. And I will say... I have two dogs. I walk them every morning and I try to actually be device-free. I used to be addicted to, I always had to have music in my ears or podcasts and I do nothing. My phone mostly stays in my pocket. I will say the days that I do have to pay attention to work because there's a little bit of a fire drill and I'm West Coast and a lot of my people are East Coast. It, it really annoys me, not because of the fact that work is there, but it distracts from that sort of quiet time and that's why I love the weekends. I'll go out and sometimes like a two, you know, three hour hike in the woods and with the dogs and you're just really completely alone with your thoughts. So I couldn't agree with your recommendation more and maybe I will get to that full day a week. I, I would relish doing that. You did mention, you mentioned videos a few times and we have this important election, which by the time this airs will be in our rear view mirror. Uh, but we're talking a few days before the election. And so I was noticing in, in doing a little bit of sleuthing before this interview that you created a two minute film called Dear Voter, and it's focused on the big picture relationship between the pandemic, this election, and why it's so important to vote. I don't think that would really, you know, that, that wouldn't surprise anyone that you do something, but let's talk a little bit about what inspired you to create this important PSA video before arguably mm -hmm. one of the most important elections we'll ever have. Well, I really wanted to, and a lot of my films do this, and even my book does this, is I really try to go deep in the past of history to get perspective on today. So in my book, I go back thousands of years. Why was a day of rest so radical back then? It was a radical idea to not work for a day. And I think that we need to not be short-sighted here. If we look back on pandemics of the past, there's a lot to be gleaned from that information. So I go back to the bubonic plague and so many people died, but it seemed to change society so much that the Renaissance happened after that. And that's an incredible thing to think about. And then the 1918 pandemic um, where, you know, 50 million people died shortly after that, it seemed to create this opening for women to get the right to vote. And I think that what we're seeing right now, again, with this so many people dying and this very dramatic time of the pandemic, and we're seeing racial justice that might finally, we might finally have progress on that. 
And I think everyone is waking up to how do you want to live? What's meaningful? What's important? And I think that we can look at these crises as an opportunity. And people say, oh, my gosh, 2020 is the worst year ever. Maybe we all needed this reset. And maybe we all made it much more clear what we really need to do. And voting, I want everyone to vote. I mean, actually, a great creative challenge of this film was making it nonpartisan. Because when I hear that people don't vote or feel apathetic about it, it makes me crazy. This is our democracy. It only works if we all engage with it. A democracy is an ideal. And so I wanted to put this out to get the longer perspective and to inspire people to want to vote and to look at this year as maybe one of the biggest opportunities for progress in our society, just as it has been in the past. Yeah, it is hard to, to strike that bipartisan message because I think we probably both sit on the same side of the fence. But I have really tried in my efforts and we at W2O have tried in our efforts to make sure people just realize the civic responsibility. Right. And I did a podcast yesterday, which will air, I think, before this one with one of our advisory board members, but lovely person. Her name is Jane Saracen Khan, and she is a health economist. And, you know, we just talked about this health citizenship and how it's so important, you know, today to do this more so than any other time, particularly with health at the, the center of what we do. And we're an agency that focuses on health. And so um, I would encourage people to take a look, even if it will be after the fact, because uh, it is a great little two minute video. I want to get any predictions from you. I know, again, we're going to be bipartisan here, but uh, any thoughts, any hopes, um, you know, for what, again, will hopefully be decided at this point. We know that this could be an interesting election that could drag out by several weeks. Mm -hmm. uh, has to be, I guess, decided at least the presidential piece by December 14th. But uh, it will be an interesting one for sure. So hopefully by the time you all are listening to this, we will know who our president is and our vice president and we'll have some updates on the Senate and the Congress. So with that, any, uh, any thoughts on that front? I mean, I come from a family of science. I hope we vote for science. Um, my brother has been on the forefront of the COVID situation and I've been releasing his dispatches. Anyone listening, I do a, a newsletter called Breakfast at Tiffany's that anyone can sign up for at tiffanyshlane.com. And, you know, people need to be wearing masks. Um, it would just save so many lives. And so I'm really hoping science wins here. I love that. And that fits in pretty tightly with our corporate message. And we are big believers in science. And we hope that science wins as well. And uh, I think people can read in between the lines as to what that means. So let's go yeah. science. Let's go science. I mean, you know, let's it's the same thing. I um yeah, let's go science. I'll leave it at that because I, you know, <laughs> so much to say, but I'll, I'll leave it at that. I think um, I, the biggest thing is I want everyone to vote and I want everyone's vote to be counted. So hopefully when people are listening to this, everyone's vote was counted. It's the most important that thing. That is absolutely critically important. So I do want to shift gears again, and this is sort of to the bigger picture of you and what you've done. You have a pretty amazing... Um, I don't know, it's an accomplishment, but sort of a recognition of this accomplishment, I guess, is what I'm looking for. And that is that Newsweek named you one of the women shaping the 21st century. Uh, I think as I wrote in my question, not a har it's hardly a shock given everything you've done, but tell us more about what you think inspired this amazing recognition by a very well-known, uh, trusted publication. Well, I have to say that happened when I was 30. Um, 
you know, my decade years seem to be big years for my work, you know, but I was 30 and I was running the Webby Awards. Now, there was so few women in tech. There's still a few women in tech, but I was this advocate and honoring the best of the web in, in my 20s. And so I think getting that honor in when I was 30, it was such a big deal to me because I was so young that it was almost, I felt like a challenge. <laughs> like, you better live up to that. So I love that that happened so young. And then, you know, when I was 40, I was asked at UC Berkeley to give the commencement speech. And it, again, it was like this challenge because it was like, what have you learned? What can you share with 17,000 people at this commencement ceremony, which was so the scariest talk I've ever given. But well, like, in I a little, that- yeah, a little context, if you don't mind me adding in, you're, you're being, um, uh, what's the word? I'm like humble because I think NPR picked that as one of the top commencement speeches of all time. So, you know, another sort of nice accolade that uh, you did something quite amazing. I've not watched that commencement speech yet, but I look forward to seeing it at some point. Well, it's interesting because it, it does talk about the failure. I mean, it's not all about the failure, but that was a big centerpiece <laughs> to that. But, you know, and then at, I mean, just thinking about being 50, I do feel like I'm using all my skills for good in the world like I I um you know this book I just got an email this morning I get so many people posting that it's changed their lives and that means so much to me that I could share the simple thing that I'm doing with my family that it's changed people's lives and then making this Dear Voter film like I do this newsletter it's a very big email distribution list at this point some people have been with me since my 20s on this list but just releasing this film and I feel like I you know I just feel like I am doing all that I can in many different formats um, to share ideas as as far and wide as I can so thinking back to that Newsweek one of the women shaping the 21st century I hope I'm shaping it in a way that makes people want to fulfill their civic duty I hope it makes them also know they don't have to be online all the time and it's a better way to live I hope people know that it's okay to make mistakes. And, you know, all of my films are really trying to push people to really strive to, to live to their potential. And um, so I feel so lucky that I get to do what I love. I really do. I mean, I, um, a big part I make, the way I make my living is, you know, I run this film studio, which is a nonprofit film studio. So it's like, you know, we're always raising money to make our documentaries. Um, and then I give talks and I really enjoy giving talks and I get paid to speak. And it has been interesting during the pandemic because the demand has been so much higher. And I've been trying to do all these creative things with doing interactive talks on Zoom, because normally I love being in a theater and really engaging the audience in a physical space. I'm trying to translate that on Zoom and make it super engaging and inspiring. Um, but I do feel like my work is needed, which feels, I'm so grateful. Um, I know people out there trying to figure out the best use of their magical powers and their unique perspective. And I just feel so grateful that I, I, I found it so young and that I, I can do what I love to do. I feel so grateful for that. So Tiffany, I'm going to ask you a question because you've said your age and I'm 52 and you even alluded to the fact that you thought if you could go back to your 20s, you know, would you? I have that same feeling where a lot of people make 50 seem scary and I feel like I'm living the best version of my life right now that 
I'm comfortable in my skin. You know, I have a great yeah. relationship with my wife. I feel like, you know, there are stresses in terms of taking care of parents and kids are far from easy, although I love my kids and they're good kids. But it sounds like you're in that same boat. And, and you know, to look at you, not that looks mean anything, but you look a lot younger than 50. And I think a lot of that has to do with that sort of comfort in your skin and the comfort in what you've accomplished. Yeah, I love getting older. I, and I also love learning. I mean, all the research says you get happier as you get older. And I think just knowing who you are, what you're doing, who you're married to, or, you know, you're you are solidly where you are at this point, or if you need to make change, you'll do that at 52. But I'm, I love getting older. I watched my parents both, you know, my dad's second career as a writer really started when he was 50. And my mom still works to this day. Um, she's 80 and loves what she does. She's a psychologist. So I think if you love what you do, it keeps getting better because you get wiser and you get, like you said, more comfortable. I mean, even as a woman, I'll just say this, you know, oh my God, all my life I was like trying to lose 10 pounds. And, you know, I'm like certain times I did when I was really stressed, I was thinner. And at this point I'm like, I'm okay with the way I feel good about the way I look. And I healthy, right? Healthy is what we strive for. Well, yeah. I just think comfortable in your skin. Like you said, I know what makes me happy. I know that tech Shabbat's are the best thing I've ever done and I can do it for the rest of my life. Um, and like, I, uh, you know, and here's one other thing, you know, we just got a puppy during the pandemic and um, we traveled so much before my husband and I both did a lot of speaking. We, we couldn't have a dog because of our life and we had a cat and now we have a dog who's bringing us so much joy, so much joy. And I think as I get older, really identifying what brings you joy, my texture box brings me joy, watching my puppy off leash brings me joy. You know, there's so many things that I can, I, I've identified, this brings me joy. And I just want to do more of that, you know, releasing a film out into the world brings me joy, even though it's a lot of work and a book, but ultimately they bring me joy. And so I think hopefully as you get older, you hone in on those things more. You know, as you're mentioning that I have two dogs, both in my office, one of which is snoring. So um, I do want to ask you some, well, I guess the first ones could be lighthearted or not, but I, these are questions I ask a lot of the guests that come on the show just to get them to know you a little bit better. And the first one is if you could have one wish, anything you want, what would it be and why? That everyone felt loved and seen. I think so many of the world's ails stem from that. Well, I love the profoundness of that. And it's very similar to what people will have heard with Jane's uh, comment. And I, I like this concept of loving, right. And just being seen as a right, a really nice corollary to that, because I think that it is one thing to be loved, but being seen as a deeper level of that even so, or, or it could happen without necessarily being loved, but just recognized and acknowledged. Yeah. And, yeah. You know, I did a, I did a post uh, on my 50th birthday, just to bring it all back to 50, about 50 <laughs> things I've learned on this planet. And one of them Oh was, my gosh, will you send me? Will you send me? I will. I will. Okay. Yes. Um, I have it up on LinkedIn, but I'll send you the link. But one of the things was like, look, when you're in an elevator, look at the people and acknowledge them, right? And I've been told by folks that are living out on the street that one of the things that they crave is, even if you can't afford money or anything like that, it's like, acknowledge them, you know, look them in the mm. eye and say hello to them. And it's hard, right? Because anytime you do that, some people in any walk of life will, 
either grouse at you or try to take advantage. But I think it is really, really critically important to acknowledge people. And it goes a long way in terms of, you know, how people feel and how they interact with you. So I, I really like that one a lot. Mm, I love that. This is a unique one that I'm going to ask to you because you are a filmmaker. So I always like when I interview musicians or I interview filmmakers, I like to ask specifically about their trade, but uh, what is your all time favorite movie? And I know that's a pretty tough one. Oh God, that is such a hard one. Cause as a filmmaker, there's some films I love the editing. There's some films I like, but, uh, but let me, let me think. There's some movies that I'm like, that's a perfect movie. And there's one that I can't even say anymore because Me Too movement has changed thoughts about the director. But I'm just going to say, I'm going to say this used to be one of my favorite films was Annie Hall. I thought that was pretty close to a perfect movie. Um, the Godfather, Cinema Paradiso, Fellini's Eight and a Half, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, the first one. <laughs> Star Wars, the first one, Frida by with Selma Hayek. I love that film. So there's The Shining. I mean, that was a crazy, perfect movie in a different way. I mean, I have I have lists like as a filmmaker, I have lists for so many different documentaries and narratives and magic surrealism. And but those I give you enough. I couldn't I can't come up with one. Well, those are great <laughs> suggestions. And I think I have seen uh, all of those and some multiple times. So thank you for sharing those. And yeah. I hear you. I mean, part of the whole, the it's like the album question. Uh, it's a very subjective answer, right? And people answer it different ways. And the whole goal is just to get a little bit of the thinking behind it. But thank you for sharing those and go see those movies, folks listening in. Last one is you're stuck on a deserted island. You can only take one album with you. Which album would it be and why? So, okay, this isn't, an, I mean, I, that also is like, oh my gosh, I have so many different answers for that. But recently, my daughter, we all play, I play ukulele and my daughter plays acoustic guitar and my, my husband and younger daughter play electric guitar. And we, we have music lessons every week. And lately, my older daughter has been playing, and she's really into music from the 70s to play on guitars. And she's been playing um, Our House by Simon and Garfunkel. And it's amazing to hear her play it because, of course, I'm thinking about our family and our house in this kind of magical time. It's my daughter's about to go out to college. We have an 11 year old and we have this puppy and a cat and we're all home all the time, my husband and I. So when she plays it, I think of that, but I really used to think of that song as this halcyon period when I was growing up before my parents got divorced because they always played that album by Simon and Garfunkel. I think the album, is it Bridge Under Troubled Waters? That might be the title of it, but that whole album by Simon and Garfunkel is so good. So I think I would pick that because it would both remind me of the happiest days of my youth and then the happiest times as a, as a parent. Well, I love, that's a nice way to, to bookend it, right? Because it does sort of have that relevance for both of those. And mm -hmm. it is one where um, a lot of times people either have the nostalgia or that recency. And so to right. it kind of taps into both right now. So yeah, I think that's what I choose. Well, great choices. Great conversation. Tiffany Schlain, thank you so much. For those listening in, this is Aaron Strout, CMO of W2O and host of the What to Know podcast. And you've just listened to Tiffany, who's an author, Emmy-nominated filmmaker, speaker, Webby Awards founder, many other things. 
uh, share a lot of wisdom, talking about failure, success, life at 50. Thank you so much, Tiffany, for joining us today. Oh, what a wonderful conversation and questions. And I really want to read your 50 things you have to send me. And and thanks for having me. This was just such a wonderful, deep conversation. I really appreciated it. Want more episodes of What to Know? We post a new episode every Thursday. Subscribe on iTunes, the podcast app, the Stitcher app, or Spotify, and view the podcast page at w2ogroup.com slash what to know.